This trip through Telehell is brought to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo.co. And you know that section where it says, how did you hear about Podgo? Well, be sure to mention Telehell Podcast in that section of the application. Trust me, it'll mean a lot to both you and to us in the long run. And since this is one of our shorter episodes, let's get the second sponsor out of the way. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the Internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. You can see us nearly everywhere. Maybe the reason so many people are at home on Channel 5 is because so many of our programs hit so close to home. Shows like Miller's Court answer your questions, the Baxters tell you stories, and Good Day addresses your interests. Channel 5, if we want you to tune into us, we've got to tune into you. The new tradition, Channel 5 and you. Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. What you're about to hear is true. This is not a regular episode, so there's no gimmicks, no devils, no nine circles, no nothing. Though I am keeping the echo, I do know a good thing when I hear it. Why am I telling you this story? Sort of as a cautionary tale, because after all the years I've done this, I want this to be a warning to all of you who want to give it a try. As far back as I could remember, with apologies to Ray Liotta and Martin Scorsese, I've always been fascinated with TV game shows. Chances are, I was more captivated by the sight of chase lights on TV and the sustained ring of a bell whenever somebody won a big prize than I was with a mobile that hung over my crib as a baby. As I grew older and developed comprehension skills, I found myself enjoying games for other reasons. The gameplay was simple and fun, the stakes were high, The theme music was always an earworm. Whatever the reason was for enjoying them as a kid, I was always obsessed with them. So, it should probably come as no surprise that when I became old enough to register to vote, I was also old enough to apply for some of these shows. It was a long, strange trip, and you're about to come with me. Let's begin with the first and numerous of my attempts to win big. Who wants to be a millionaire? Six tries. Four in person and two by phone. The one, the only, the atomic bomb that wiped out the rest of network television in 1999 and gave ABC something to crow about again since the days of Fred Silverman. The first few tries to make it on were the original Regis Philbin version, and for that you had to qualify by phone. The game was simple. All you had to do was answer a series of fastest finger questions and you're in. Sounds easy, right? 
Well, not so when you only have 15 seconds to answer correctly, and you only get to hear the question once. I think the best I ever did was to get to question four before striking out. I tried to do it again on the second night, but by then the show had become so much of an instant success that it was nearly impossible to make it through the line, so I decided to let it go. My second attempt at a fastest finger came a few years later, when ABC revived the show as Super Millionaire, this time with a $10 million grand prize. And this time around, I wasn't going to foul up. Or so I thought, until one of the questions was about arranging the names of nuclear physicists in the order they were born, starting with the earliest. Long story short, I played multiple guests and struck out again. I wouldn't be so upset about it if it wasn't the first question they asked me. I mean, I get it, $10 million is enough to feed starving people, but there's certainly a level of escalation to be expected, right? Start with a question about Dr. Seuss first before you jump ahead to Dr. Oppenheimer. After the Super Show, I didn't really give Millionaire much thought, until about seven years later when I began the first of four attempts to get on the daytime version of the show hosted by Meredith Vieira. I won't bore you with the details of each visit, so here's the cliff note version. You have 10 minutes to answer 30 questions, and if you get a passing score of undisclosed value, you then move on to an interview segment. If you manage to pass the interview segment, you then make it to a videotaped interview. After that, you get a card in the mail saying that you're either in the contestant pool, or you're out, but try it again anyway. Of the four times I tried, I made it to three interviews and one videotape. Too bad they don't seem to reward for tenacity. By that point, the show was already going downhill, losing to the then-revitalized family feud with Steve Harvey. Also by that point, the show had moved to the West Coast, and I'm an East Coast guy, so couldn't really do much about that. The show ended in 2019, but episodes of the show are still happening on ABC with Jimmy Kimmel hosting now, as well as celebrities and first responders playing for charity. Deal or no deal, minute to win it, The Price is Right, and Wheel of Fortune. One try each. I've lumped these together because each of these shows' audition processes have surprisingly the same thing in common. One, stand in a long line for hours at a time. Two, once you get to the head of the line, you have 15 seconds to explain why you should be a contestant on a given show. And three, exits are to the left. For deal, wheel, and minute... I was kind of shocked as to how fast the audition process was, and just how little in terms of the actual games there was to audition with. Though the thought has occurred to me that I may be a little unfair including Wheel of Fortune in that collection. Yes, my experience with that was that of an open cattle call, as most wheelmobile events tend to be. But, believe it or not, that was not the actual audition. In truth, the real audition requires you to solve a number of puzzles in a certain amount of time. But that's only if your name gets drawn at Wheelmobile events. So for argument's sake, we'll just call the Wheel Experience, uh, Half Audition. But it was at the Price is Right contestant search outside of Boston, where I lived at the time, where I found out a difficult truth. While waiting in line at a Costco parking lot, I was standing next to a somewhat cute, curly-haired brunette woman, just about ten years older than me, who claimed to be a contestant on Millionaire a few years earlier. I didn't watch religiously, so I didn't recognize her. After trading a few war stories about what we did and how many auditions we've been on, she dropped a truth bomb. 
She told me point blank that in most cases, it didn't matter if you knew how to play the game, it didn't matter if you were having fun, it didn't even matter that you were being yourself. Supposedly, the only thing that mattered when it came to auditioning for a game show was how good you looked on camera and nothing else. In a sense, I kind of get where she was coming from. After all, TV is TV for a reason. People don't tune in to see ugly people unless they're getting a makeover or they're a secondary character on a sitcom or maybe they're a perpetrator on that week's edition of SVU. At the same time, though, this kind of hurt me. I was always given the notion that people go on game shows just to win stuff and have a good time doing so, not to look pretty in front of millions. That it would be a place where typical, ordinary people would have their day in the sun. And if they're lucky, return to their respective hometowns as conquering heroes. Well, you can, but only if you either act like a spaz or have a ton of makeup on your face, apparently. So, in an effort to put that bummer behind me, I decided to try an audition for something a little more cerebral. This is Jeopardy! Jeopardy. Four tries, all online. If you ever get a chance to find it at a used bookstore, or even if Amazon can fish out a copy or two for you, I highly recommend a book by former Jeopardy! contestant and winner Bob Harris, whose book, Prisoner of Trebekistan, is not only a fascinating insight as to how Jeopardy! is a well-oiled genius machine, but it's also probably one of the funniest things I've read in a long time. Bob kind of goes into better detail as to how the Jeopardy! contestant search process works as of 2006. In 2009, I find out that Jeopardy's auditions would actually be in the form of a rapid-fire quiz that you take online. That way, you can skip blowing money on a red-eye trip to Los Angeles. The first time I did it, though, I didn't quite know what to expect. But at the same time, I didn't expect it to go that fast. You only had 15 seconds to type in the correct answer. Oh, oh wait, it's Jeopardy, so that's actually correct question. And if you thought the question on physicist birthdays on Millionaire was over my head... Questions about Greek aqueduct design was clearly into the stratosphere, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm not that smart, despite using the occasional $20 word. But that first seven-minute test was enough to put my brain into a straitjacket. I didn't fare better on the other three tests, obviously, because how else can I tell this story? But at least I knew the mechanics of the test well enough to, at the very most, have fun and maybe even leave them laughing. The Chase, 2012 edition, one try. In 2012, producers from what we now know as the Game Show Network decided to bring a show to the States that captivated the country of Great Britain. And along with the show, one of its biggest brains, Mark Levette, a.k.a. The Beast, was going to be the main villain of this show. For those who don't know, he's got a lot of credentials, especially from the universities of Exeter, South Wales, and also a place called Oxford University. He took his smarts to various UK quiz shows like Mastermind, Countdown, and the original Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, scoring big wherever he went. He wasn't the only chaser on the show, however. There was Sean Wallace, the Dark Destroyer, Anne Hegarty, the Governess, Paul Sinna, the Sinnerman, Jenny Ryan, the Vixen, and most recently, Dara Ennis, the Menace. They would all become part of the UK's biggest collection of brains to take down potential prize winners. Thing is, the Beast did it so frequently in the UK that he, and he alone, would be the chaser that American TV producers would bank on becoming an international star. 
But first, they needed contestants to take him down. The audition was actually a lot more informal than I remember it being. Taking place at a high-rise hotel just off of Broadway, I was surrounded by a bunch of average Joes and even a few TV game show veterans. But we didn't get to talk. Everybody in the room was there to fight. The audition happened in several parts. The first part was a crowd of 30 people answering a number of questions by holding up A, B, or C cards. Not quite what the game was, but at least it laid some foundation down. We then get to everybody's favorite part, the interview. And at this point, it should be noted that at this point in my life, I had recently returned to college after being unceremoniously dumped by a previous place of employment through no fault of my own. But that's a different story for a different day. There was one good thing about the experience that I could use to my advantage here. A good old-fashioned, queen-for-a-day-ish sob story. Minus the sobbing. I pretty much laid it thick that I was looking to get back on my feet again and that going to school was a big part of it, and that the future was unknown for me at that time. And all three of those statements were true. But at most, I thought my problems were the ultimate Hail Mary in terms of being personal in front of TV producers. Several hours after I left the audition, the Chase producers were the Gerard Phelan to my Doug Flutie when they told me to come back to the hotel the next day for a run-through of the game. Cut to the next day. We play a mock game of the chase, and I honestly thought it went pretty well. In what they call the cash builder round, I managed to get every single question right, and I tried to maintain some cool comfortability that was made possible by the laid-back nature of everybody in the room. The producers also encouraged us to come up with our best, but not too nasty quip or insult, that we could dish out at the Beast if we ever made it on the show for real. And if I recall correctly, I said something along the lines of, You may be the Beast, but I'm the Red Menace. Shut up, I thought it was good. Also, for those who want to know what I look like without putting up any pictures, clue number one, I have red hair. Anyway, after that, me and three other players get to play a simulation of the final chase, which, despite getting only two questions wrong, I also thought went pretty well. After that, we said our goodbyes. I hear the standard will-be-in-contact spiel that I've been hearing for years now at other game shows, and I went about my business. Three weeks later, rejection number 953 shows up in my email, but they do encourage me to try again in the future. Unfortunately, the future for that version of the chase turned out to be a lot bleaker than we thought, because the show wound up ending in 2014. The show is back on the air on ABC, but I haven't exactly given much thought to auditioning for that one yet. The Million Second Quiz. One, and only one try. I wrestled with my conscience as to whether or not I should tell this story, but in the interest of full disclosure, I might as well. In 2013, NBC had an idea for something unique. Place a giant hourglass in the middle of New York City, have hundreds of people take their turn in playing a new kind of quiz show, have it be a cross between Millionaire and CBS's Big Brother, and see what happens. What happened was probably one of the most convoluted, poorly executed, poorly conceived, ill-tempered game shows to ever be unleashed onto an unsuspecting public. And for some reason, I wanted in on it. I'm not going to go into too much detail about it, largely because a lot of other people have gone into greater details than I ever could. But suffice to say, it was thanks to this game show that I made a personal vow to myself 
never to wait a long time for something that's never going to happen ever again. Anybody who's a fan of Saturday Night Live might know the rumors that sometimes Lord Michaels likes to keep potential cast members waiting for their audition for a long time. I'm here to say that even Lorne himself would probably have been angry at the waiting that you had to do when auditioning for the Million Second Quiz. First, there's a preliminary audition site. You arrive there and you wait an hour for the actual audition. Once you get approved, you then arrive at a place where they're taping the show, which incidentally happened to be an old used car lot. You wait another hour. You're placed in a holding pen. You wait another hour. You're placed in another holding pen where you get to watch video after video about the rules of the game. That takes another hour. You stand online to be sent to the show's green room. You wait another hour. Finally, you wind up in that green room, which is sponsored by a certain fast food place whose food is highly questionable at this time, but I'm not going to name names. Long story short, despite having to take test after test after test and go through other various forms of entertainment throughout the day, I had to stay in that room until 3 a.m., and at that point, they dismiss you after you've been in the building for 12 hours. Quite honestly, my bile just rises thinking about it. So do yourself a favor. After you're done listening to this, go to a website called Game Show Garbage, which they may also call themselves Game Show Gumbo, but that's besides the point. Look for an article that they wrote about the show itself, and trust me when I say every single piece of information that they have about it is easily verifiable. But suffice to say, this was not only one of the worst experiences of my life, but it also deterred me from auditioning for another game show for four years. Match Game, 2016 edition, one try. At this point in my life, everything was actually going kind of good. I got a job for the first time in many years, I was starting to whittle down some college debts, and I thought I had a pretty good handle on life. And I still do. However, I find out through a number of friends that ABC was adding new revivals of classic shows to their lineup that summer. I was still feeling a little squeamish from the Million Second Quiz experience, and I actually wasn't that interested. Until I found out later on that the taping of these shows would be right in my backyard, just a couple miles away in New York City. One of those shows, the new $100,000 Pyramid with Michael Strahan, had already filled its contestant pool. And that was a show that I was actually interested in doing more than the other one, but I didn't really think much of anything else after that, until I saw a banner headline that said, Alec Baldwin to host new match game from New York City! And it was at that moment that I had to get in on it. Match game had become one of my favorite ways to kill a few minutes in the morning, both on Game Show Network and on Buzzer. And it seems like the only place where you can consume alcohol and still win cash and prizes. This time around, the audition had to be done virtually. And that was years before it would ever become as common as it is now. I did this through Skype, something that I never used before, and something that I honestly thought could have resulted in a great technological blowback considering I live in the boonies of New York State. The audition went well, the producer I spoke to liked me, and I thought nothing else about it. As a matter of fact, one thing that wound up happening at that audition I thought would be a cinch. I told the producer that I was practicing the game with another friend of mine. Unfortunately, she wasn't too familiar with what the match game was, so when I gave the clue of dog blank and wrote in what the blank was, it could have been dog toy, could have been dog bone, 
could have been dog food that she said. Instead, my friend said, dog fart, which I thought was actually kind of funny. Funny enough to tell the TV producer, but apparently it wasn't quite as funny as she thought it was. The producer, that is. Because I did not wind up on the match game. And now, because life actually wound up getting in the way a couple places, I didn't audition for another game show for another four years. Which brings us to present day. Or at least, last year present day. To say nothing about how bad this pandemic has been the past year would be an understatement. A lot of people had to adjust, a lot of people had to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, and more importantly, a lot of people had to figure out how to kill time before they could go back to what they consider normal. Among the things that wound up happening, I came across a listing on a website called Backstage.com saying that Fremantle Media, which happens to own the rights to a bunch of game shows that you probably see on a daily basis, was actually looking for the first time ever for virtual contestants for one of their shows. The long-running Let's Make a Deal. And because everything was done on Zoom by that point, I figured... What do I have to lose? I don't have to travel anywhere, and I don't have to pay for any airplane tickets. So, why not give it a try? And so, in the summer of 2020, I do the same thing that I've been doing for the past 20 years. I poured my heart out to the TV producers. But because this was Let's Make a Deal, I had to amp it up a little bit. Now, as I'm recording this, I live in a split-level house with two other neighbors who happen to complain if I get a little too noisy. So for argument's sake, let's just say I had to act a little like this. Long story short, it worked. It took nearly 20 years, but I was finally going to be on a game show, on network television, in front of millions of viewers. This was something that I had wanted for my entire adult life, and now it was finally happening. They set up a record date for sometime in October of 2020, and they say to put on your best costume. I happen to have a number of costumes on hand, but the one that I used was a top hat and vest that had Christmas lights strewn over it. It was something I wore at an office Christmas party once. The interesting thing about this was that you actually kind of got to see how the show was being made. And in my case, I had to spend 10 hours sitting through three TV tapings. But all the fascination of how a TV show is made kind of pales in comparison to the fact that after 10 hours of whooping it up, clapping, going woo, and trying to keep my energy up for as long as I can without a meal, I did not get selected to play. You can't get any closer from the outside looking in than that. And keeping in mind, they sent a lot of forms to fill out, saying that not only was I going to be on TV, but they kind of made it sound like it was guaranteed that I might actually win something. Even if it is a parting gift. But I guess I'm a little rusty on my legalese, because none of that wound up happening. Am I bitter about this? No. Absolutely not. Because, quite honestly, being on the show itself might have actually been a lot better than playing the game. In fact, 
One consolation I can take away from this is that for the next few months after those tapings, which happened to air in November and December of last year, I'm actually featured in exactly one second of the opening credits for a few months. Now who can say that? I've been auditioning for game shows for almost 20 years now, and as long as it's geographically convenient, I'm gonna keep trying until I can get on just one and actually win something. But thankfully, I'm not as obsessed about it as I was a few years ago. Nor should I be. I've got a pretty good life these days. Appearing on a game show would just be a cherry on top compared to a much bigger picture, which I don't want to get too personal about, but I will get to at some point. In the end, to me, being picked to be on a game show is very much like the old expression, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, which is kind of a stretch, I know, since I have testicles and I look much better in a suit than in a dress. But at least I can carry on an unrequited crush on game shows from a distance. Preferably, the six feet I can be away to watch them on TV. But like I said, this is more of a cautionary tale. I don't want this to be any sort of don't give up on your dream kind of thing. Although, yeah, there is a little bit of that. Instead, I equate all these experiences. All the auditions, all the rejections, and even coming super incredibly close that one time to something I once heard Conan O'Brien say in his 2011 graduation speech to Dartmouth University. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. I went to college with many people who prided themselves on knowing exactly who they were and exactly where they were going. Your path at 22 will not necessarily be your path at 32 or 42. One's dream is constantly evolving, rising and falling, changing course. It is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy, but if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. No specific job or career goal defines me, and it should not define you. In 2000, I told graduates to not be afraid to fail, and I still believe that. But today, I tell you that whether you fear it or not, disappointment will come. The beauty is that through disappointment, you can gain clarity, and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. And there is no greater cliche in a commencement address than follow your dream. Well, I'm here to tell you that whatever you think your dream is now, it will probably change, and that's okay. Four years ago, many of you had a specific vision of what your college experience was gonna be and who you were gonna become. And I bet today most of you would admit that your time here was very different from what you imagined. But through the good, and especially the bad, the person you are now is someone you could never have conjured in the fall of 2007. And hopefully with this discussion of all my game show failings, you understand now why there's a telehealth. We started this show with the notion that a lot of bad things wind up happening, and we kind of want to find out the why behind it all. At the same time, though, we don't want to flat-out mock the failures. Rather, celebrate them in a way that, even though they happened, we'll find out why they happened, and maybe use that as a template as to how not to do something like that ever again. And that's the important thing about failing. You don't let it control you. You embrace it, and you adapt to it. And then maybe, just maybe, you can understand why people keep coming back for Brady Bunch reruns. 
Oh, and just so that there is some sort of nine circle related quota for this one, being on game shows is pretty much uh, obsession, so that would be a mark for lust. You try to win cash and prizes on that show, so there's a little bit of greed. And the fact that I've been doing it for 20 years now is a sign of gluttony for punishment. Just so we get that out of the way. Next time on Telehell, if you've ever wanted to know why we use Think of the Children as a joke sometimes, it may have something to do with this. Let's all sing the 1975 version of those weather days. Oh, Oh, goody, goody, gumdrops and other family hour expressions of delight. (laughs) Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. You know that thing that people do to communicate to each other these days? about being social, on media. There's a name for it, but I forget. Anyway, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Telehell Podcast, and don't forget to stream us wherever podcasts can be heard. Of course, there's always good old home sweet home. Telehell.libsyn.com. Telehell.libsyn.com